Hello, and welcome to the Diet NPO podcast. My name is Zach, and I'll be your host. Let me tell you, people, feels like the RD exam season is still in full force as we have a lot of students who got out of their May graduations, they went on vacations, they decided to take some time off before they started picking up into the exam. I had one student even yesterday who just texted me letting me know that she had passed her exam for her fourth attempt that she had taken it and she got her 25. Let me tell you, as a tutor, this feels like the best thing in the world to just get that confirmation of that, that the person can do it and to see it really happen in, in like kind of on paper when it really matters. That's the biggest piece of it. I always talk a lot as a tutor about trying to make sure we're dissecting practice questions really well. I think that's the biggest key to these types of standardized tests because they're not like our undergraduate. They're not like our graduate exams. They're a lot different. And so we need to treat them like they are as such. So I'm gonna to discuss today a little bit of an approach for going through practice questions, breaking them down, putting ourselves in the best position to answer those questions. As of tutoring, you know, I've had this kind of issue with balancing my work-life stuff because I'll sometimes work seven, eight hours as a dietitian during the day commute home for an hour, and then I'm basically um, sitting there tutoring for three to four hours. So sometimes that can be a challenge to go through all that at the same time. So just kind of make and do with how I can there. The way that I look at every exam question and the test itself is that it's a game of odds. So if we have to guess on any four answers, which we would never want to just give a random guess, but if we had to, what are the odds we're going to get that right? Well, we have a one in four shot of getting it right if we go and guess on any of the four answers. Makes sense. Now, what if I decide that I think that one of those answers is complete trash? So I think D, for example, is complete trash. Now I've taken my odds from one in three to, I'm sorry, from one in four to one in three, which is pretty decent odds. What if I even eliminate one more answer based on what I know? Now my odds are one in two. 50-50 shot, odds don't get better than that. I will take that every single time. So this is what we need to do on the exam when we're breaking questions, dissecting questions, and looking at those answers, is trying to choose which one is the best answer, not necessarily the one that is right. Together, I'd like to go through some questions and talk through how I would dissect this question, the answers, and how I would come up with my final decision. We can jump around all four domains with these questions, so let's see how this is gonna apply to something situational. What is secreted in the bloodstream in equal amounts to insulin secretion and thus can be used as a clinical indicator of insulin production? Is it A, glucose, B, C-peptide, C, glutamic acid, or D, cortisol? So as we dissect the question first, then we're going to go through the answers themselves. What is secreted in the bloodstream in equal amounts to insulin secretion and thus can be used as a clinical in indicator of insulin production? That's all we have to focus on. Which one of these is going to be kind of correlated with insulin production, right? Would glucose be correlated with that? So as insulin goes up, that'd be like saying glucose goes up. Is that true? Actually, I think that's the opposite. I think that as my insulin goes up, my glucose will go down as they kind of have that counteractive effect. So to me, if I'm at that one in four odds right now, I'm going to trash away A because I think it's just a throwaway answer. B, C-peptide. What do I know about C-peptide or what do I not know about it? Well, if I didn't know about it, I maybe want to hold on to it for just a second so I can't rule it out. But if I do know about it, I know that C-peptide is kind of this protein attached to insulin is how I've understood it. Correct me if I'm wrong. But it's basically bound to insulin. And then when insulin gets secreted, the C-peptide and the insulin break off together. 
Um, so they break off from each other to make insulin kind of active. You can think of it like that. So to me, I go, all right, well, I do know if I have more insulin in the bloodstream, I'm probably going to have more C-peptide because they get secreted together. So I'm going to hold on to that. It's probably a good answer if I think about it. C, glutamic acid. What do I know about glutamic acid? Well, it sounds like it's an acid. It's probably an amino acid, actually. Is that going to be secreted in equal amounts of insulin? Not as sure. I would say probably not because I don't know anything about that, but I know I, I at least can't say that I know that they do that. So if anything, hold on to it. D, cortisol. Cortisol is one of our stress hormones. Does it secrete in the same amount as insulin? I would say probably not. I'm not going to go searching for something that's not there. So that would be a bad fit. I'm basically stuck between C-peptide and glutamic acid, making C-peptide my best answer if I dissect those. If I'm down to the 50-50 shot and I decided on C-peptide because it felt better, then that would still be the best fit there. Which of the following foods must a child with phenylketonuria avoid? All right, this should be pretty good. A, eggs, B, bananas, C, rice, or D, french fries. Which ones does a kid with PKU need to avoid? What do we know about PKU? We know it's one of those inborn errors of metabolism, always happens to children, babies, can happen to adults a lot of the time too. But what is phenylketonuria focused on? Well, really it's just when we have, if a child with phenylketonuria ingests anything with phenylalanine in it, phenylalanine being our essential amino acid, then they will end up not being able to digest the phenylalanine, so it builds up in the blood, becomes toxic. You could think of it like that. So which foods here are going to have the essential amino acids? Eggs, rice, bananas, or french fries? Amino acids I usually know as our protein type of foods, so I'm probably going to be looking for good protein options here. If I look at the egg, I'm like, all right, I know eggs do have proteins. They usually have a lot of our essential amino acids. I'd say it's a good fit that I want to hold on to. For rice, I, mm, I'm not as split on that. It does have protein in it. Um, does it have specifically phenylalanine? Not as convinced. I'm going to get rid of that. Bananas don't usually have much protein at all unless I add peanut butter to them, which I do. Um, so we would probably get rid of bananas because bananas are definitely not known for their protein content. Last one being our french fries. Potatoes being more of a starch, probably not as much of a protein, especially not an essential one or else, you know, vegans, vegetarians will be eating it all the time. So between those, I'm going to say that the only answer I can really get down to is the protein dense one being eggs. And that is our answer for which one should a child with PKU avoid. The dietitian would like to determine if clients on long-term tube feeds require vitamin and mineral supplements. Which would be the first step? Would they A, compare nutrients provided for volume compared to the DRIs, which are dietary reference intakes? B, conduct anthropometric measurements? C, assess for clinical signs of deficiencies? Or D, monitor biochemical measurements? Well, when we dissect the question, I think a big piece here is they're on long-term tube feeds, and we're trying to check about their vitamin and mineral supplements. They're trying to determine if they actually need vitamins and minerals, okay? I think that's what we need to hone in on here. So A, if I compare nutrients provided by volume of formula to the DRIs, what that's going to tell me is I'm going to see how much percent of the DRIs they're getting from their vitamin, like from their tube feeding, right? That's kind of the whole big piece of this question is A is actually, I'm going to hold on to it because what we need to do first is say, all right, can we look at on the surface and see if their vitamin and minerals are meeting up with the DRIs? For example, when I give a patient 
Let's see. Um, so for example, like four cartons of Jevity 1.5 in boluses, that means about 100% of the RDIs, for example, or some of the DRIs. So that's kind of gives you a little reference as I go forward here. Conduct anthropometric measurements. Well, while that's gonna tell me if they are gaining weight, losing weight, maintaining their BMI, technically it's not gonna tell me about their vitamin and mineral supplements and if they need those. I'm gonna get rid of B because I do believe it is a bad fit. Assess for clinical signs of deficiencies. Well, we do know that that would fit towards monitoring their vitamin and mineral deficiencies. So um, we can hold on to that. I don't think it's the first step I would do because it would be better just to say, all right, how does their intake compare to their actual needs? Are they even deficient in anything we think? Or D, monitor biochemical measurements. This could be things like, um, you know, it could be wounds, it could be labs, things like that. I think of labs a lot of times with this. So am I gonna be keeping an eye on their potassium, sodium, chloride to tell if they need vitamins and minerals? Not usually, or not if they need supplements. That's probably not my wheelhouse to say. I mean, if they have classically low potassium, we probably need to be adjusting their tube feedings, or maybe they need to be on like potassium medication or potassium phosphates. But no, I'm thinking that D is probably a bad fit. So I'm between A, compare the nutrients provided by volume of formula to the DRIs, or C, assess for clinical signs of deficiencies. I'm gonna go with A as my first step here, which is the key, because I just wanna compare. Do they need any vitamin or mineral supplements? Well, I can easily just check the DRIs and their tube feedings and seeing if that provides what they need. The dietitian in a long-term care facility sees the cook place a tray of newly made egg salad sandwiches on the counter. Okay. An hour later, the sandwiches are still there. According to HACCP guidelines, what should the dietitian do first? Okay, so they came back an hour later, tuna sandwiches are still sitting out there. Should they ask the cook when the sandwiches were prepared, take the temperature of the sandwiches, discard the sandwiches and recommend that new ones are made, or refrigerate the sandwiches immediately until service? What's the big concern with this question? Well, the big concern is all about foodborne illnesses. That's what the dietitian is concerned about because they're saying we put these tuna salads, these ready-to-eat foods on there, on the counter, they rested there. And then the thought is, is, have they been sitting there so long that they're out of the temperature window they need to be in? Have we developed foodborne illness? That's the big question here. As I break down each question here, ask the cook when the sandwiches were prepared. Maybe, I don't love it as a fit, but I might just put a question mark on it. B, take the temperature of the sandwiches. To me, this does a couple things. One, it helps us to tell what the temperature of the sandwiches are right now to know if they have been out of that window for very long. Or even just to say, you know, is it is it still within the normal limits of what it needs to be for tuna salad? I think secondly, it's gonna help just confirm, okay, like, is this at risk for food and borne illness or not? I'm gonna hold on to that as I think it's my best answer as far as what to do first. C, discard the sandwiches and substitute fresh sandwiches. I don't like that as an idea because we need to acquire more information. That's the big thing here. Would we do that first? Well, we don't know. We're still within that window where the sandwiches could be totally fine for their temperature. We just need to get some more information. Or D, refrigerate immediately until service. Well, if we already think they have foodborne illness in those sandwiches or foodborne illness is developed, we don't want to just go refrigerate them because that's not going to go killing off the bacteria. So I'm getting rid of C and D in this case. So we can ask the cook when they were prepared or we can just check the sandwiches ourselves to see if they're in that window. Making B, checking the sandwich temperatures can be our best fit because it's the first thing we would do. Then if we had to discard and make new ones, we absolutely could. 
Since you all stuck through so many of those good questions together, I thought I could just have us go through a few of the different types of food service systems, different examples, as I've had a lot of students requesting this lately, and I figured, hey, it's an area we can all get a little better at. So this is gonna be our things like our conventional, our commissary, it's gonna be our ready prepared, and our assembly serve type of foods. These are different types of food systems that we all eat from without realizing it. So let's just break them down together. We're gonna start out with conventional, being our classic one. Um, when we think about these different systems, it's all about where was the food prepared, one, and two, where's the food being served, as well as like when are we serving it? Is it gonna be served immediately after we cooked it? Are we gonna be hot holding it and transporting it? What's the deal of this? I wanna start with conventional because this one's the classic or the normal or the restaurant that you go to. You walk up to Chipotle or your favorite mom and pop restaurant, sit down at the table, order your food. Food is cooked in the kitchen that is back there, probably what, you know, depending on where you're at, it's pretty much pretty close in the same building, the same vicinity. And then it's immediately served to you once it's ready, at least if you're lucky. This is commissary, I'm sorry, this is conventional, this is the classic type of system where food is being prepared in one area and then immediately served to the customer. We're not transporting it, we're not driving anywhere, we're not doing a bunch of processing, it's pretty much just being served right then and there. Conventional foods can be prepared, can be purchased in all different types of forms, that's a good piece here, is that doesn't necessarily mean we're always making raw ingredients, like we can buy bread and put sandwiches together and serve it in the same area, and that's still a conventional type of setting. So it doesn't have to be that the foods are all from raw or scratch ingredients. Even a buffet type of style will still be kind of conventional because we're putting food out for people to serve immediately, right? We're not waiting up at all. Next, we're gonna move on to commissary. In a commissary setting, I've pictured these very large centralized kitchens where large portions of food are being prepared or even being plated in one location. But the key point is, is we're not serving it immediately at that same place. We're gonna transport it somewhere else. This is what commissary does. We have that big centralized location, and then we're going to go serve to all those satellite kitchens or all those satellite service areas. Um, sometimes prisons do this. A lot of schools do this, for example, and that's the example I go through here. When I was in my food service rotation, we got to observe um, an elementary school lunch, which was pretty cool. Um, yeah, no one would let me sit with them, unfortunately, but that's all right. Um, so the big thing that I had noticed with this is we... At our university, there's this very large centralized kitchen where there would be one cook in there making all the chicken tendies for all the kids, mashed potatoes, and green beans. They put these in these deep metal dishes, and then they wrapped them up and put them in, I believe what's called a cambro is what I've seen them called before, but it's just a hot holding box that we seal shut. Then they would load that into a truck, drive it about 10 miles away to where this elementary school was, they would basically drop it off there right before lunch was served around like 11.30 or so. So the basically the cooks in there at the school actually would then take all the food out, take the wrapper off, they put it on plates for people or they'd ask the kids how many they wanted and then they would serve it right there to the kids. So you see in the commissary, we went to a complete different satellite location to serve that, but it was all prepped in that one centralized location. What are some of the benefits of this and what are some of the cons? The benefit is, is you can prepare uh, lots of food in a nice big centralized kitchen, a lot more control in that area. Um, instead of having to transport food to different types of satellite locations, like 
I'm saying like raw food, you don't have to transport like raw ingredients to be prepped later. Um, it's pretty easy. The second piece is, is those people that are serving the food at the elementary school, they don't have to have a lot of skill to do that. It's really anyone could do that. It's just serving chicken tenders and scooping out mashed potatoes. Anyone can really do that. The cons of this type of situation is there is a greater risk for foodborne illness because you are transporting foods. Um, you have to make sure it's staying hot, checking the temperature, a lot more critical control points. So that's one downside. And then it's a cost to pay someone to drive the truck and actually just you know, do that whole process that all costs money to do that for that transportation as well. Another type is our ready prepared, also known as cook chill or cook freeze systems. These foods are cooked first and then either chilled or frozen for service later. It can be served either in the same location or other locations. So that's a key point. It doesn't have to be the same location itself. It's kind of more about how we're cooking and chilling the food and going through that. I had one of these experiences in my internship because in our large centralized kitchen, we actually had this, um, in the basement, they had this very large area where there's these like 100 gallon vats where you could boil 100 gallons of water basically or 100 gallons of rice. You could cook 50 pounds of beef in there if you needed to, like kind of those giant, giant skillets kind of thing. And so then what they would do is they'd bag all that food up. They drop it into a freezer cooler so that it freezes very quickly in these like water baths type of thing. And that, and then later, like two days later, they would open up that package to serve it for like the lunch hour. So that is that cook chill, cook freeze system where you are training a few employees to monitor these big pieces of equipment. They're in charge of bagging it up. And then we're gonna let the other employees go and serve it later. What are the pros and cons to a type of service of this? One thing is you get to purchase a lot more food and cook a lot bigger batches of food at once. And why is this beneficial is that we actually save a lot of time in the labor because instead of having 10 people cook 100 gallons of pasta, we have one or two people who are cooking 100 gallons of pasta in just giant equipment. It's a lot easier to do that, lots easier to manage. Our product is going to be very consistent across that because it's big bulk amounts of it. The downside being is that you do lose some food quality whenever we have to chill something or freeze something and then reheat it. So we are going to lose a little bit of quality in that process, which we do have to stay on top of. The other downside would be is this equipment is, I mean, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, some of these pieces of equipment. They are massive, cooking large amounts of food like that is very costly. Equipment breaks down all the time, your service slows down. So that's just kind of the downside of it is that there is a higher cost in the initial with the like equipment itself. Lastly, we have assembly serve, the easiest form of nutrition for whoever is gonna be serving it. Um, these are our ready to serve that require minimal to no cooking from the actual person that's serving it. They're doing the least amount of work possible, it seems like. Maximum form of processing is also how we differentiate that. So fresh, frozen, dried items like shredded lettuce or sliced carrots, packaged lasagna, frozen dinners, these are all things that I think of. And I really go back to my example of like a 7-Eleven hot dog. The person who serves a 7-Eleven hot dog just literally puts it on that little heat roller thing and that's it. They don't have to do anything else because it's at the max processing. They don't do any chopping. They pretty much just open a package and dump it in. Sometimes we can do this with salad items where everything is chopped and all someone has to do is open five bags and mix it together. That's kind of an assembly serve where it's assembled, served, they didn't do chopping, they didn't do cooking, they didn't do anything to get there. 
The big downside of this is you do lose tons and tons of quality whenever you buy everything so processed or if everything's already chopped. That pre-chopped lettuce is going to get really soggy really easily and it's going to be decreased quality once we've chopped it up. Same with all of our other vegetables, our meats. Once we've already cooked it, it only loses its quality from there. And then the upside being is you don't have to pay someone to know how to do this job. Really anyone can do this job and you can get your foods out to a wide variety of people in different stores because they can do the job themselves in the store. Today in the What's Eating You segment, we review some delicately poached eggs. Now as a huge OVO fan, I'm usually not putting together poached eggs all the time. It takes a lot more work. I'm someone who just likes to throw crack two eggs in the morning, scramble it up, add some cheese and call it a day. I'd probably eat eggs every single day if uh, my significant other did not think I was strange for doing so. But I do like having poached eggs in my back pocket, not literally, just so that I can kind of have a new way to cook eggs, make things look more presentable, the texture's a lot nicer and the taste is a lot nicer. I recommend using some farm fresh eggs or some like type of like pasture raised eggs as they usually have a more attractive yolk color, tend to taste a lot better. My recipe that I take from is from Alton Brown, the great, the one and only. He recommends using vinegar in his cooking process, and I'll mention a couple things he recommends, but I usually pretty keep it pretty simple because the more I mess with things, the worse it tends to go. Starting with this, I'm going to take a one to two quart pot, and I'm going to put it on my stovetop and bring it up to a boil. While that's boiling, I'm going to crack maybe three, four eggs, depending on the size of my pan, into ramekins. And if you don't know what a ramekin is, Picture basically just the kind of those small little sauce cups that we get served in a restaurant. Sometimes you'll get like ketchup in there on the side of your burger or any small little dish like that that you think would be easy to drop in and slowly drop the egg into the water with. That's the key here. We don't want to like plop the eggs in the water. We want to do it very gently. Once that water reaches the boil, I'm going to take all those eggs that are in the ramekin and then I'm going to slowly kind of dip the side of the ramekin in there until I get to the bottom of the pan and then I'm going to slowly tilt it so that the egg kind of falls to the bottom of the pan there. Um, I'm going to do that with all my eggs and Alden Brown recommends for example that you kind of do the whirlpool method which is you make a small little kind of a whirlpool above each egg to try to like get the white to form around it. I really just have better benefit when I don't touch anything so I just drop them in and I just don't touch them. Remember, now that we've boiled that water and we've dropped those eggs in, we need to shut that heat off. We do not want any direct heat on this right now. We're just going to let the water do its job. I'm going to put that lid back on, make sure, and then I'm going to wait five to six minutes before those eggs are finished, depending on how much you like them. Then I'm going to use a small slotted spoon to lift that out of the bottom of the pan very gently. I'll place it on a paper towel or a plate and kind of pat them dry gently to get all like the water off. And I can serve them over eggs benny, over toast, over anything that I would like to at that time just by itself. I enjoy doing it with sriracha on a side of toast, for example. But that's how we're going to do our poached eggs, and I hope you keep that in your back pocket to try out. That eats it for the What's Eating You segment today, and that's it for the Diet NPO podcast. I appreciate you all sticking around today if you did. If you got to learn about a new way to do practice questions, poach your eggs, or just wanted to learn a little bit about food systems, I hope you took something that you could use. I appreciate you always listening to the Diet NPO podcast. Check me out on Instagram, Zach underscore snacks. And hey, have a good day.